Our reading this morning is Mark chapter 3, the gospel according to Mark, third chapter. I'll begin reading in verse 1 and read the chapter in its entirety. For the sake of the sermon, we will give our attention to verses 7 through 35. It's beginning verse 1, Mark 3. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre, and Sidon, and a, pardon, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Boanagers, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And he came home, and the crowd gathered again, to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished." But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. 
because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my brother, pardon my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. We see here in Mark chapter 3 that there is a pertinent issue relevant in Mark chapter 3 that is just as relevant, no less relevant, among us in our culture, in the society in which we live, in the world today. That issue is, who is Christ? Who is this man? There are so many misconceptions with regard to his identity. There are so many misunderstandings with regard to his mission. There's so, much, so many skeptics out there, so much skepticism surrounding him and what he came to do. Along with that, there's a lot of intrigue that surrounds this man and his ministry. We've just come out of, as we're working our way through the gospel according to Mark, five run-ins, five clashes or collisions that Jesus has with the religious establishment. And the popularity that he is experiencing from the crowds has not dwindled as a result of these clashes, but rather continues to increase. Now, popularity is not the only thing increasing with Jesus, but there is also hostility on the rise, hostility towards him, specifically from the religious establishment, but not only from the religious establishment, which we see in the text this morning. There's a smear campaign that has been created to thwart his rising popularity. Now, it backfires. We know that because we have some familiarity with how the life of Jesus goes. But it's interesting to see and to watch it play out in order that we might guard our hearts from being involved in the same kind of thing. This smear campaign has resulted in pressure from two different angles for Jesus that we've seen thus far. The the crowds, on the one hand, that will just call them curious. And then the religious establishment, the scribes and the Pharisees, on the other, which are not curious, it's not fair to call them curious, there's real malicious intent on their part, and they want to do away with this man, or at least protect their people from being swayed by him. Now the passage today, Mark chapter 3, reveals yet another angle from which Christ is receiving pressure. So you have the curious crowds, the religious elite, and today it's his family those closest to him. So when we see Jesus here in chapter 3, he's he's in what we might call a three-way vice, and it's being tightened. All three are being tightened from three different angles. Now, from the religious establishment, we can expect that there's going to be pressure from them. There's no reason they would like him. 
They are opposed to everything that he stands for. From the crowds, we can understand the pressure, the intrigue, the amazement, why they would follow and want to see and be close to him. But for the family to be one of these vices that is tightening down on him, it's shocking. It's why phrases like, with friends and family like this, who needs enemies, exists. But here we see it even in the life of our Lord. I mentioned previously, we're looking at verses 7 through 35. Today, I've split it into three points. Verses 7 through 19, appointing his disciples. Verses 20 and 21, along with verses 31 to 35, assuming he is delusional. And then verses 22 to 30, accusing him of having a demon. So, appointing his disciples, assuming he is delusional, and accusing him of having a demon. First, Jesus appoints his disciples. He doesn't do it immediately in this section. The first thing we see, in verse 7, he's withdrawing again. And we, and we see this pattern from Jesus time and again. It's like he jumps into the fire for a bit, and then he, he comes back. He, he's a man. He is truly human. He withdraws from the crowd in order to spend time with God and here we see even with God's people. So he's among the crowd. If you want to split this point into two subpoints, you have the crowd discussed in verses 7 through 12 and the called in verses 13 through 19. So this crowd includes people from all over. Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. It just goes on. People are coming from all over the place. The crowd is massive. It is growing. And Jesus' response to the crowd, look at verse 9. Not at all what we would expect. It's not what we've seen from him up until this point. But he says, we need a boat. And it should be ready. Because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him, Mark says. Jesus requests an escape boat. The crowd is pressing in. Jesus is not fatalistic. He is the Son of God. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity. And he is not fatalistic in his understanding of God's sovereignty. He may need a way to get out of here. His time has not yet come. And they are pressing in. Now, reading from the New American Standard, for some reason it's incredibly sterilized. The the second half of the verse, that last phrase, if some of you have the ESV in your hands, I feel confident, and it says it much more pointedly, lest they crush him. That, That is what is intended by the original language there. They are compressing in. They are causing distress, hence the vice illustration that I used earlier. With the purpose included with the original language is the purpose of suffering affliction. Like it's, It's crowding in on him, which is why he says, get a boat. We may need to get out of here. Stand ready. Let's have a way to escape unless things go south quickly. Now, among this crowd, there are two primary kinds of people noted that are present. We, we know that the crowd is there, the curious ones are there, but there are also two specific kinds of people. They are there, the sick are there. He had healed many, verse 10. 
with the result that those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. So there are sick people crowding around him. Not only sick people, but possessed people. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, verse 11, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. So among the crowd, there are the curious. Among the crowd, there are the sick. Among the crowd, there are the, those who have unclean spirits, the demonized. Jesus was healing the sick. He was casting out the demons. These crowds, for the most part, have gathered because of these headline-grabbing healings and exorcisms that he's been practicing in his ministry in the previous weeks. Now, some are there just because they want to watch. They want to witness the action that's happening in the life and ministry of Jesus. Some are there because they need to experience the physical healing from Jesus. Some are there because they need the demons cast out of them by Jesus. The sad reality is that most of those in the crowd here, most of these people who are in the crowd, never move beyond this level of utilitarian curiosity. They just want something from him. Which goes back to the question that I began with that was important here in Mark 3 and is important for us to consider. Who is Jesus? Is he just a remarkable miracle worker? Is he just a healer of the sick? Is he just someone who casts out demons? May God help us to not sit in the, with the curious crowd seeing him as useful for the material, for the physical, or for the temporal only. It's ironic that the demons state the most truthful thing in this scenario. You are the Son of God. The demons have more head knowledge than the crowd's. They knew he was the Son of God. And they were attempting, you may remember in a previous passage, one of the ways that you showed control over spirits was to name them. You could claim authority over them by calling out their name. And that's probably what they're attempting to do here. They're attempting to flex and show this man who he is. And so they say, you are the Son of God. The crowds think of him as a mere miracle worker, and the demons say, you are the Son of God. And verse 12 tells us that Jesus earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. That is a very mild way. Again, there's a measure of sanitized language here from Mark. It's a mild way of saying Jesus muzzled them. He shut them up. And they didn't tell anybody else. He cast the demons out. And from there, Jesus goes from seaside up to the mountain. Verse 13. This is Jesus' response to the pressure. He transitions from being with the crowds to being with the called. His response to the pressure of being in the vice, he went up on the mountain, verse 13. And he summoned those whom he himself wanted and they came to him. So he, he went up with, with his followers at this point. Those who were responding appropriately and believing him went with him. He went to spend time on the mountain with his father and on the mountain with his people. 
those whom he himself wanted. He goes on the mountain with those who are his in order to divide up the responsibilities, in order that the impact of his ministry might be multiplied and that the effect might be felt more broadly, more widely. We see that playing out in in the following verses there. Jesus appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. They are the called. What are they called for? Look at verse 14. So that they would be with him. Wonderfully encouraging. They were called to be with him, just to spend time with this wonderful man, to watch him up close, to see him, to witness the ministry happening, to learn from him, to imitate him. They were called so that they would be with him and so that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. What are they called for? They are called to announce the kingdom's arrival, to be heralds of this merciful man who has arrived, to spread the news far and wide, and to exercise his authority over demons. What are they called for? They're called, in summation, succinctly stated, to be his people. Now, it's encouraging on one hand to see the reality of what's happening for his disciples here in this passage, but just transition it right forward. We are called for the same purpose, to be with him, to know him. That's what he's called you for, not to be nodding acquaintances, but to be family, to be Christ's kin. That's what he's called you to be. The title for today, Kin to Christ, that is, as a son or daughter of the living God, you've been called to be kin to the Christ, the Lord, not just to be with him, not just to know him, but also to have this remarkable opportunity and privilege to spread the glad tidings of this, our King. Jesus appointed 12. So out of this mass of disciples that he's called to himself, he sets aside and appoints 12 who will become apostles, the specific ones who will be sent out. Jesus has has just made an emphatic break with the leaders of the old religion, right? Clash after clash, five times, one after the other. This break has happened between Jesus and the leaders of the old religion. In that old religion, there were 12 founding fathers coming out of the 12 tribes. Jesus is creating here, before our eyes, as it were, as we read Mark chapter 3, he is creating what the apostle calls in his letter to the church of Galatia in chapter 6, the new Israel of God. This is the beginnings of in embryo form, the foundation of the New Testament church. In fact, when the New Testament refers to the word church in the original language, it's literally called out ones. It is a a word and a prefix put together that literally means ones who have been called out. That is what Jesus is doing here on the mountain, establishing 
the very beginning days of the ecclesia, the called out ones, his church, his sons and his daughters, us type people. Mark rolls through these original 12 here in the following verses, 16, 17, 18, and 19. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter or Rock, who struggled miserably with stability in his life. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. He called them sons of thunder because they were evidently hotheads looking for an argument. They would, as my mom used to say about me, argue with a fence post. Hopefully I've made progress. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew. Remember Matthew, Levi, that tax-collecting traitor? And Thomas, who was marked by devotion, but we remember him more for his despondency and his doubt. And James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the zealot, So zealous, in fact, that he founded an extremist organization in order to lead a rebellion against Rome. This is one that Jesus has called to himself. And then Judas Iscariot, who finally betrayed him. This group, this untrained, ill-equipped conglomerate of men, this is who Jesus calls to establish his church with and to eventually, Acts chapter 17, turn the world upside down. They were the called. We are the called. It's fascinating that Mark delineates these folks here for us in order that we might see God's not looking for superstars out there somewhere. He's looking for everyday Joes and Janes like us. And he has called us to be his people, to be with him and to be sent out into the world by him. And then there's a scene change again. There's a lot of scene changes here in the passage. Jesus withdrew to the sea to begin with, and then he went up on the mountain, and now, verse 20, he comes back home to closer to friends and family who assume, point number two, that he is delusional. Now, I mentioned earlier this, is, this point includes verses 20 and 21 and then again 31 to 35. This is intercalation or framing or bookends or sandwich type narrative. There are all kinds of ways that people refer to this, but basically the story begins, then Then Mark runs in a different direction, telling us another part of a story, and then he comes back and circles back around. I mean, some of us talk like that in our normal conversation. Here, it's a narrative, it's a device here that he's using to begin a story. He goes off in a tangent, and then he comes back and and brings it home. As I mentioned already, we notice here that the pressure from the crowd, the pressure from the religious elite, The pressure in the life of our Lord doesn't even subside at home. 
He came home, the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. He is out of his mind. He is not acting in accordance with himself. Jesus, from their perspective, is delusional. And they feel the need to protect him from shame, from harming himself or harming others, from dishonoring the family. The crowd was such, verse 20, that they couldn't even eat a meal. And this plays into the rationale coming from the family. Meals were rituals. Food was scarce. To not eat was considered insane. It made no sense. So they're throwing this in with the other things that they see and hear about their family member and close friend. And they assume that they have the responsibility of removing him from the public's eye. In considering this portion of the text, I was reminded of Bertha Smith. Some of you may have heard of Bertha Smith. She was a missionary to China a hundred years ago. She went in the late, around 1917 maybe, and was there through the 20s. So remember what's going on in our country during the 20s, towards the, the, the latter part of the 20s with the Great Depression. While she was there, The Shandong Revival, which is a very famous revival in China, happened, and it was immediately right there around where Bertha Smith was serving. And there, as a result of the Spirit working deeply in the lives of the people there, not not only were the Chinese people affected by the work of God, but the missionaries were also affected. There's a missionary couple, actually, Culpepper was their last name, and his, his wife was blind and even healed during this time. It was just a remarkable work of the Lord. But Bertha Smith became convicted about receiving too much food in the cafeteria during her days at college, and she sent what amounted to about $20 or so back to um, the college, to her family, to give to the college issuing an apology in her attempt to make things right. Any idea how her family responded? They went straight to the mission board and demanded that they pull her off the field because she must have lost her mind if she's giving up money, even a small amount, during the Great Depression while she's in China, going through all the trouble that she was going through to do what she felt was right in the eyes of God. Her family accused her of losing her mind and sought to bring her off the field. It's a little bit of a picture of what we see happening with the family of Jesus here. He's given up a business in Nazareth that met his needs. He's publicly set himself up against the religious authorities of his day. He's gathered a rather unimpressive crew of men as his followers. His family is legitimately concerned for his own well-being 
his religious zeal is too extreme for their comfort. Without voicing it, at least without it being recorded for our benefit, they seem convinced that Jesus suffers from messianic delusion. And they see it as their responsibility to save him from himself. And the story, as I mentioned already, continues in verse 31. His mother and his brothers arrived. And standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. Here, they're attempting to protect him. Literally to arrest him. And Jesus responds, who are my mother and my brothers? Startling words from the sinless Jesus. Startling words in a culture where family was sacred. Jesus was not, not in any way whatsoever, suggesting the breaking of family ties. We know this is true. As Jesus hung on the cross in his dying moments, he makes necessary provisions for his mom to be taken care of. He's not disengaging from his family or breaking the family ties. Now, the family is in serious trouble in our day, the nuclear family. Jesus is not in any way saying that family does not matter. Jesus is not rejecting his own family, nor is he sanctioning that it would be okay for us to in some way reject our family. Jesus is making a straightforward point that any and all distractions must be dealt with, whether friend or family or foe. If the will of God is impeded, even friends and family must be put and kept in their proper place. And a proper prioritizing of family, according to what the Scriptures say, will prevent us from falling into some type of domestic idolatry or familial narcissism. Idols and the family in the day of Jesus in that culture was very much in danger of being an idol and was an idol for some Idols that are good and respectable, and family is good and respectable, those idols are the most dangerous for us. So again, it's important to see, Jesus is not saying family doesn't matter. He's putting it in proper perspective. His family at this point was playing a part along with the religious elites and along with the curious crowds and those who were just seeking to receive something from him rather than to be with him. They were playing a part in impeding the work of God and the going forth of the will of God through the ministry of Jesus. Now, with all that said, let's also consider with what I've just said, is, I think, a common way to look at this perspective. To, it's a common perspective to look at this and to consider this passage. But let, let's think about it from another angle just briefly. Consider it from the angle of Jesus. Okay? The religious elite are against him. The crowds only want to take and use him. And now those who he knows best, 
who he has known the longest, are betraying him as well. He's experiencing betrayal from those who are closest to him. I mean, we see his response, and we can easily imagine his family being offended and confused. But, but what about our Lord? From his perspective, it allows us to recognize yet another wonderful way that Jesus can sympathize with us when friends or family or those that we trust betray us. We see it happening to him. The religious elite is against him. The crowd is against him. Even his closest family members and friends that he's lived with and grown up with, they are attempting to do the kingdom harm by pulling him away. They don't understand him. They should consider the question that we began with, who is Christ? They have misconceptions. They have misunderstandings. May God help us to avoid misconceptions and misunderstandings and recognize that he is the one who has called us to himself in order that we might live with him and have the privilege of proclaiming the good news to others. And then finally, verses 22 through 30, accusing him of having a demon. Now, it seems like that the family's accusations of he's lost his mind He's lost his senses, is mild in comparison to the accusations from the scribes. He's possessed by Beelzebul. He cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. But it's not quite as mild. The family's accusations are not as mild as they appear. Because someone losing their mind in their culture was tantamount to being possessed, and often they would um, cross over in people's minds. So it's not like the family made a mild accusation and the scribes made a harsh accusation. Again, it's a vice, and it's being turned from every angle on the life of our Lord. With that said, there is a double demon accusation here (laughs) that they are Pressing in, it's like their vice is splitting into two. Some of you have seen vices that do that, and, and that's what's happening here. Just being pressed from, from every angle. He, th- this man, this Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebul. He's ruled by the ruler of the demons. He's ruled by evil spirits, this, this Lord, this Christ, who has come to save them, and that's the accusation. Jesus was reduced in their minds to the son of Satan, to being a demonized sorcerer. Now, they were absolutely correct in their estimation that the ministry of Jesus had to do with the kingdom of Satan. That much we can give them. But they were completely unaware, it seems, that his ministry had to do with the destruction of the kingdom of Satan and not its advance. And they accuse him of being in the fight with Satan. And so Jesus responds to their ridiculous accusations with two parables. He uses simple illustrations. And he begins with a question. If I am the ruler of the demons, if I am Satan, as you've accused me, how or why would Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. 
Civil war has a loser. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Verses 24 and 25. Here's Jesus answering very emphatically and pointedly. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's finished. Your theory, you scribes who accuse me of this, your theory is a logical absurdity. And Jesus continues with the second illustration. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he binds the strong man first, and then he will plunder his house. Verse 27. Jesus says, you know what? You're slow learners. I'll explain it to you. This is what's happening. The strong man is Satan, and his house is the kingdom of darkness here on earth. The strong man's property, that's all who are in bondage by his demons. Only someone stronger than Satan can enter into that realm, that kingdom, and free those who are in bondage and captivity. What Jesus is saying to them is, I'm that one. I'm the stronger one, and this is what I'm here to do. This is what I've been doing. I'm here right now. I have the keys keys to loose your chains even now. I'm entering Satan's house. I'm binding him, and I'm loosing the captive souls, which should beg the question inside of our minds, have you been set free from sin's foul bondage? The psalmist prophesied about it. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. And Christ did come. And he continues to set free those who are captive in their sin. He's come that we might be free and free indeed because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he he doesn't stop there. He issues, at the end of explaining what's really going on, he issues a stern warning. We can think of it as like flashing lights coming to bear on the situation. Like this, this is the point of the conversation, of the response that you don't want to miss, we hear Jesus emphasizing. Truly I say to you, that's the emphasizing part that I'm talking about. Truly, he, he begins, when we finish saying something that's true, we say amen. Jesus begins with it. <laughs> amen, he says, literally, which is, listen up. All sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, verse 28. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Here's the warning. Listen to this, Jesus says. Be careful of being guilty of eternal sin. Be careful of committing the unpardonable sin. Jesus is saying to them, you are on the cusp of placing yourself right outside the cusp of God's forgiveness. And his forgiveness is wide. That's where he began. All sins shall be forgiven. Whatever blasphemies they utter. The the forgiveness scope is wide. And Jesus says, you are still in light of the widenesses of his... uh, in light of the wideness, the wideness of his forgiveness, you are still 
putting yourself on the cusp of putting yourself outside of that scope of forgiveness. You are on the verge of committing the unpardonable sin. And when we think about the unpardonable sin, we misunderstand it, we misapply it. It's because it's much easier to say what it's not based on we have, what we have in Scripture than it is to say what it is. So let's take that approach briefly. The unpardonable sin, what is it not? It's not cursing God. It's not cursing the Holy Spirit. It's not taking God's name in vain. It's not adultery. It's not murder. All those things are sin. They are not the unpardonable sin. Well, how do we know that? Well, verse 28 is helpful. All sin shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But you know what else is helpful? King David, his laziness, his adultery, his dishonesty, his murder, or the apostle Peter, his triple denial at the cross, or Saul of Tarsus, Paul's pre-conversion persecution of Christians. We know that forgiveness is wide. And we know that not just from looking on the pages of scriptures, we know it by our own experience. God has forgiven us of so much. So what is this unpardonable sin? What, generally speaking, that continual, final rejection of the witness or conviction of the Holy Spirit, refusing Him all the way to the end. And more specifically, with regard to this particular context, which always matters, these religious elites, these scribes, experts in God's law, according to themselves, They were on the brink of committing this eternal sin. That's what Jesus said to them. Be careful. You're getting so close. Truly, I say to you, listen up, he says. They were persistent in their repeated blasphemies. They were attributing the work of God to the work of Satan. And when persistent, repeated blasphemy becomes permanent then you're guilty of eternal sin. When you identify, finally, that the works of God are actually done with the power of Satan, you're guilty of eternal sin. Or the unpardonable sin. Even in this situation, where Christ is being pressured from so many directions in so many fashions... He's extending forgiveness. Oh, there's a warm welcome. If you'll just come, turn away from that edge. You're close to going too far. Do not go too far. Even though you've been persistent, turn and come back. Come to me and find forgiveness. As vile and as wicked as these scribes had been and were being, they were not yet guilty of this sin. How do we know? Again, verse 28, because all sins shall be forgiven of the sons of men, whatever blasphemies they utter. But if they do not heed the warning, they will be damned. And if you do not heed this warning, you too will be damned. Do not persist in refusing the call of Christ. 
Do not persist in refusing the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Do not persist in refusing the welcome of the Father. Respond to Him. Respond now in faith, turning from your sin and trusting in this Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Misconceptions abound in Mark 3 and in our world. Misunderstandings are aplenty in Mark chapter 3 and in our own minds. Skepticism is prevalent in Mark chapter 3 and among us this morning. Intrigue still present in Jesus all these years later. Who is Christ? Every one of us ought to seek to answer that. And to avoid siding with those who said, he's out of his mind. Or with those who said, he's a son of Satan. Or with those who said, he's a wonderful healer. Or with those who said, he's a demonized sorcerer. Or with those who said, he cast out my demons. Who is this Jesus? He was pressured from every angle. And he understands the pressures that we face. He's in the three-way vice of establishment, the religious establishment, the crowds and his family and friends. Whatever the pressures are for you, whether it's family, the culture, the community, your job, Whatever the pressures are that we face, we have a high priest in Jesus who can sympathize with us, who draws near, who has called us. He's called us to be his kin. Don't remain in the crowds when you've been invited invited into the family. Respond to the call of this Christ. Verse 35. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever, consider the inclusiveness of this welcome to come to God. All are welcome. Whoever. There's an exclusivity to it. Only those who obey him. But don't get caught up on that. Because he has promised to provide all that we need to abide in Him forever. He has accomplished it in Christ. Whoever, that's you, this morning. Spiritual kinship is characterized by obedience to God. Here's how to be near one so wonderful as this to do what He says, to come when He calls to respond in faith and repentance. Obedience to the gospel call is the pathway to being in God's family. Obedience to the gospel call from Christ. Obedience to the gospel conviction of the Holy Spirit. Obedience to the gospel invitation from the Father. The call to come, what an incentive. 
all your sins will be forgiven. Why argue? Why not come? And when you come, Christ set aside the apostles twofold to come and to go. To come to Christ and to go tell others about him. Go, therefore, he says to these same apostles at the end of his life, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The very beginning of the ministry, when he's establishing the church, he called them to be with him. And here, as he sends us out into the world, here's the promise I'm with you always. It's not a temporary with him. We don't come learn a little bit and then go do it on our own. He calls us to himself in order that we might be with him and with him forever. We don't have the capacity to walk away from him. He's walking with us. He's promised to be with us wherever we go. We're called to be with him, and he promises that he will be with us. As we close in song, the final verse says it very well. Then in fellowship sweet, that's the communion that we're called to. We will sit at his feet to know him, to learn from him. Or we'll walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do, where he sins, we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Enter into the kinship of Christ today. And if you are in his family, promote that glorious truth in all the arenas and avenues that God has provided to you. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your Son, and we pray that you would give us more clear thoughts about who he really is, that you would convince our minds and our hearts would engage in response by loving him and following him. God, we pray that you would remind us day after day of the reality of the necessity of answering the question, who is this Christ? And that we would be increasingly convinced by the truth of your word that he is king, that he is Lord, that he is Savior. And God, that you would grant us the grace to live like it as a result. God, we thank you that you've called us to yourself and you've given us the privilege of proclaiming this good news to a lost world. We pray that you will help us to that end as we're reminded that life here is short, but it is worth living because of who Christ is. We thank you that he lived and died for us. We pray in his name. Amen.